Welcome to the Crescent Podcast. I'm Leanne. This podcast is an extension of my personal philosophy and commitment to continual growth in all areas of life. I firmly believe that optimal health comes from addressing all areas of us as human beings, physical, mental, emotional, and spiritual health. Through expert interviews, I hope to both inspire and enable you to create sustained change in your own life. Thank you so much for tuning in and enjoy. Happy Friday, everybody. This week, I am bringing you all a discussion with an amazing woman, Holly Grig Spall. And she is an author, an activist, and does a lot, a lot of work in the realm of hormonal birth control. And I was actually originally exposed to Holly's work through another podcast interview with her. And I quickly ran and grabbed her book called Sweetening the Pill. Ran through it, absolutely sped through it. It was so, so good. And you know, now that I have a podcast of my own, I knew without a doubt that she was someone I had to have on here. And I'm so excited for you all to hear this interview with her because it's, in my opinion, a very, very comprehensive interview on hormonal birth control. We cover everything. We go all the way back to the beginnings of birth control, how it even came into existence, the cultural and social implications of that time and why it was so impactful, how it really changed women's lives. And then shifting into how we're seeing what many of the science-backed side effects are, what hormonal birth control is actually doing within our bodies, what is being changed physiologically, you know, and that includes things like our gut microbiome, our brain anatomy, our mental health, and what many of the side effects and health risks are related to hormonal birth control, as well as many, many options of non-hormonal birth control. So I'm so excited for you all to get just such a well-rounded look at this topic. And again, from someone who has been in this for many, many years now, sort of almost silently fighting all of our cause even when this wasn't really a topic of discussion. So, and just a reminder that any resources, any books, individuals, websites, products that are mentioned in any of the episodes, I will always link to in the show notes. So if something is mentioned, I will almost always link to it. So if you're wanting to do further research of your own, definitely check the show notes for those links. And with that, enjoy this episode with Holly Grig Spall. Well, Holly, thank you so much for coming on the Crescent Podcast. I'm so excited to dive into your brain and just your experience with hormonal birth control and everything you have to share. Thank you so much for having me on. Yes. So I always start with asking the guests to give their background as much as possible. I think it helps for all of us just to get to know you a little bit better. So even take us back before your book. What what was your childhood like? Where are you from? What Ooh. was your education in? Well, um, I am from England, as you might hear still, um, but I've lived in the US for 10 years now. Um, so I guess my uh, 
journey, you know, I was a journalist originally. I was a journalist, you know, a student journalist. I was a journalist in college. Um, that was my first jobs. Um, and it was mostly arts and culture journalism, you know, movie reviews, interviews, that kind of thing. Um, so I had that background in like curiosity, you know, investigating and how the whole journey with the pill started for me was writing an article as a journalist um, and pitching it to a magazine that isn't around anymore, unfortunately, a Condé Nast magazine. Um, and a very nice editor there met up with me for coffee and she found it really interesting. You know, she had had that experience. She knew lots of women did um, have side effects and experiences with side effects. And that was really like gave me the confidence to think hmm, maybe there's a story here as a journalist that we could look into more and come to understand something that perhaps hasn't been written about before or or really, you know, that hasn't really taken attention so that's where it began for me. And then um, I moved actually to the US and I was waiting for my uh, work visa to come through and I had time on my hands. And so um, with that time, I decided to start a blog, uh, which was called Sweetening the Pill. And the subtitle was Who Am I When I'm Not on the Pill? And I came off the pill um, after 10 years of being on it from 17 to 27 um, and documented that in the blog. And, you know, the blog, this was in 2009. So, you know, that at the time was the way you would, you know, disseminate information. These days, I'd probably be on Instagram stories or something. And um, I was pretty good at writing the blog. I had a lot of information and research that I'd done for the article that hadn't gone into the piece. And so I started there and I built that up over a few years. And inevitably, it became a book proposal. Um, and then I shopped that around for a very long time, you know, more rejections than anything. Uh, you know, it's very difficult to write about a su- subject like this um, from the point of view of being a lay person, not a medical doctor um, yeah, yeah. who wanted to just share their experience and, you know, the, and sort of discuss it in a sort of sociocultural way. Um, and so eventually, though, I, I did have some luck and I got the got it published in that was in late 2013 Um, and since then you know as a journalist you know other people would have moved on perhaps have written about other other topics Um, but my life has ended up being much tied to this topic uh, because it was picked up for a documentary in early 2014 which is coming out later this year um, oh, and God, document, excited. yeah, documentaries take a really long time to make. So that's been, you know, part of it. And so, you know, I've been assisting as um, a co-producer on that production for some time. Wow. Um, yeah. So that's why I'm still in the thick of it, really, and still will be for another couple of years, I'm sure. Um, and as part of that, you know, I've ended up doing workshops for women coming off the pill. And, you know, I find real I like to do like real life events. I'm not fantastically great at social media or or that sort of thing. So I've done a lot of like workshops and speaking events and things like that instead to kind of, you know, talk about this in different ways, you know, help women who are actually trying to come off the pill um, currently. And yeah, that brings us up to date, really. Yeah, well, and it's, yeah, I think it's so amazing how long you've been in it. That really is such an incredible factor because so many of us, it, this is sort of just coming maybe to mainstream 
media. Yes, definitely. But, oh my gosh. I mean, you were in this before anyone was even talking about this. So that is just so amazing that you've stuck with it for so long, particularly when you've gotten such negative pushback from media and people who maybe don't want this information out there yeah and that's the interesting thing is you know and a lot you know totally understandably a lot of people don't know that because when my book came out it was you know not well received in a lot of areas by you know uh journalists you know feminist pundits uh feminists on twitter you know people who um took a lot of issue with talking about these problems who claimed that these problems were not real who claimed that you know that women weren't experiencing them at such a high degree um that you know we didn't need to listen to those women that this was scaremongering that the pill was the greatest thing to ever happen to women um and there was a lot of shutting down silencing there was even a petition to try and ban the book being published before it was published um You know, I was called a, a a wing nut. I was called crazy. I was called all sorts of names by other women um, in, you know, career journalists who, you know, decided that this little book out of, you know, a UK publisher was worth attacking and telling people, you know, actually not to read in their reviews, to not even make up their own minds about it. And now we're many, many years on. I could not see that happening because we're all about, Uh, listening to women, believing women's stories, believing women when they tell us their stories and experiences, medical Me Too stories. We're talking about uh, medical gaslighting and, you know, you know, the violence toward women in the medical system and hospital system that they experience through pregnancy and birth. And, um, you know, we're much getting more, much more enlightened. um, And we're also much more aware of the right way to receive, you know, these stories and experiences. And so now we're seeing a lot of people questioning, you know, is this as, you know, the narrative we've accepted for such a long time actually working for us still? But yeah, Mm -hmm. things have changed a lot, as you say, it's very different now and, and, um, than it was then. And, you know, I, it was for, for better or worse, it was ahead of its time, essentially. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I think the film will hit at the optimum time. Yeah. Yeah, that's going to be so neat. So I love that you brought up the feminists and actually how they really rejected all of the data you were trying to bring to the table. And to start, because we're going to hopefully get into so much here, there's so much we can cover. Yes. But I really think when I was reading your book, what struck me so much was really the beginning of birth control. And how it came into the world. And I think that sort of cultural, social aspect of it plays a huge, huge role in why maybe it's so hard to let go of it now. So if you don't mind taking us back to the beginning, how did birth control even come into existence? Mm -hmm. And what was sort of the social impacts of that at the time? Well, obviously, they had a situation where a lot of women experienced multiple unplanned pregnancies. um, And you know, male-female relations were very different back then. You know, women were having, were you know, we ha- we still have issues now with reproductive coercion, but women were having a lot of uh, babies that they didn't want to have, not through their own choosing. Um, and, you know, uh, the pill came at a time when it was really seen as a possibility that if women 
could not be pregnant when they didn't want to be and, and avoid that and space their pregnancies, then they would be in a much better position economically um, and they would be in a much better position um, in their you know health. And so that's the kind of the soup that they were in at the time. Um, and obviously, you know, it, it was a tool that had its place. Um, it helped women, you know, in terms of how we viewed uh, women as a society, help them into the workplace um, outside, you know, working outside of the home um, alongside men. Um, and that was, you know, clearly a watershed moment for women's history. Um, but, you know, women also took it up enthusiastically you know women wanted to take the pill women you know were, were fighting to take the pill um to be allowed to women who weren't married women who couldn't claim to have menstrual irregularities as it was originally prescribed for um and so you had a good decade of that um but then of course the original pill um Enervid, i think it's Enervid, yeah um was very high synthetic estrogen so it caused a lot of very severe side effects for 10 years, um, which brought us to 1969, 1970 and what was called the Nelson Pill hearings, Senate hearings, where, um, you know, doctors were alerted to the fact that women were um, experiencing very severe side effects from uh, depression through to death due to blood clots, stroke, um, because of the high synthetic estrogen content. Um, and they held Senate hearings, interviewed a lot of doctors about the research. They produced, um, you know, a lot of evidence on what was happening. And uh, women got together at the time. And this was basically the very beginnings of the women's health movement, as we know it now, National Women's Health Network and, you know, all the other things that we have now, organisations that we have now. And they went to the Senate hearings and they protested them because they weren't interviewing women. Only people on the boards uh, were men. Only people who were asked to give evidence were men. Um, and they turned up and they said, you know, very inflammatory, you know, things like, you know, they bought pills with them and they wanted all the men in the room to take a pill, um, that they were being killed by the pill, that they were being used as guinea pigs and experimented on. No, this was, they weren't, you know, taking any of this, mincing their words or, you know, they were very straightforward about how they felt about the situation, that this had been pushed out to women who had taken it in droves with very little information because they were absolutely desperate for something to help them avoid unplanned pregnancy. Um, and then there had been a huge fallout from that. And the consequence of that was essentially the insert that we all have in the package of pills now that lists all the side effects that most people ignore, don't read because... It's a medication that we often don't even consider to be really a medication. We just consider it to be a, like a supplement or a vitamin almost. Um, and so the 70s it was sort of up and down in terms of how feminist movement dealt with it. But by the 80s, we had really seen the marketing from the pharmaceutical companies take over to make the pill a lifestyle drug which is what it's called now. So essentially make it essential for women for all sorts of women's health problems. So, you know, irregular periods, uh, migraines, uh, heavy periods, um, acne, PMS, mood swings, 
um, endometriosis, PCOS, any kind of infertility issue, um, you know, we ended up seeing it being built up by the pharmaceutical companies as kind of the answer to every single issue that women were experiencing. Um, and then, of course, that's a very powerful message. And it's very, you know, has, has continued to be a very powerful message. Um, and, you know, now I think we're the younger generation has different re personal relationships. You know, they expect more of young men um, in terms of responsibility and they have the ability to connect with other people through social media and Facebook groups um, to organize and to understand that it's not just them experiencing side effects. Uh, the greatest example of that recently has been the movement behind eShaw, the e-sisters movement. That's not a hormonal birth control, but it was a, a sterilization device that caused a lot of harm. Um, and women themselves found each other through social media and were able to take action that way to stop it being given to women. Mm -hmm. um, so I think, we're, you know, basically we look back on the history and we can totally be happy to say there was a time and a place and a necessity, um, but that now perhaps it is not the thing that we want to continue forward with. We want to look at other options um, and we also want to reassess as those feminists did in 1970, you know, where we're at with that and what women are being told and what they need to know. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And two things I want to touch on on that. One, um, in your book, you also mentioned that in the beginning, hormonal birth control was being tested on men and women, but the men were rejecting the side effects so much that they were like, no, there's no way this will work for men we're going to use it on women instead. Yes, of course. In the beginning, they had no reason to think that it wouldn't be something because all you're trying to do is stop the production of sex hormone. Um, so for women, that's stopping the production of sex hormone, progesterone and estrogen and replacing it with a synthetic version. And with men, it would be stopping the production of testosterone. Um, and was the men I'm sure although many of the men in the early trials just like the women were not fully consenting you know the early trials of these drugs were done at things like mental health facilities um done on you know um marginalized communities that had no information were you know sacrificed basically to the cause of developing the pill um but the doctors and researchers themselves I think were deciding we don't like what it looks like in men when this happens, which was things like testicle shrinking, um, when, of course, you know, women's ovaries also have the same reaction, but we don't see that because it's inside mm -hmm. our bodies. Um, so they were making the call and saying, well, we see we're doing this, but then we're going to stop and we're just going to continue with women mm -hmm. because we don't tolerate the men having those side effects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe they just complain a bit louder than women do, particularly, yes. particularly in the time when women well, definitely didn't have as much of a voice. And, and today we're still testing male pills, male hormonal injections, male hormonal options, and trials are being stopped on the basis of them experiencing side effects that are no different. Depression, mm -hmm. mood swings, low libido, um, all of that, you know, um, yeah. concerns that the testosterone production in the body won't return once they come off worries about it not being reversible um all things that women deal with already yeah yeah, yeah exactly yeah
And we have the studies to back it up, but no one's really paying attention to that. So that's super interesting. Mm -hmm. And then the other thing I just, I love that you mentioned is absolutely when the birth control pill came out, it was a huge moment in history for women. It allowed us to join the workforce in a way we previously hadn't been able to. We weren't uh, sort of slaves to what what at the time was considered just sort of the condition of being a woman, that you can get pregnant at any time. Mm-hmm. But exactly as you said, we're in a time now where thankfully science and research is giving us so many other methods to prevent pregnancy that don't have any side effects at all. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we're. I think the struggle is shifting that mindset of we can let go of the pill and hormonal birth control and all the harmful things it's doing to us without turning our back on women. That's not really what the issue is here. It's actually the exact opposite. We're trying to stand up for women and fight for them and show them that there are other options that don't come at the cost of your mental health and physical health. Yes, and I think that that's the problem is that, you know, the assumption is it's not only the best option, but the only option that's effective for women um and you know we elevate it in lots of ways as I said before it's considered a treatment for many issues when when we haven't really considered what the alternative treatments might be or what the real treatments might be that get to root causes um so we've created a very sort of black and white thinking around it where you know it's uh, the problem is is we're thinking that we're arguing well you either take something which has no side effects or you get pregnant And, you know, it's like, well, obviously, you'd rather have side effects than have an unplanned pregnancy, perhaps. Um, That's the argument. And so, you know, that that that's a very difficult discussion to navigate because, no, you know, especially in the US, you don't want women to have unplanned pregnancies when they often don't have access financially or geographically to the thing, the, the services they need to make decisions at that point. Um, so, you know, that's a strong argument in that sense, except that it misses the piece that there are other ways to avoid pregnancy. Mm-hmm. Um, for me- and for many women, those are accessible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And just from a cultural standpoint, I think we tend to be so black and white in everything. You know, it's mm-hmm. good or it's bad. It's right or it's wrong. And with this, it seems very much like if you're anti-hormonal birth control, you're anti-women. And that's absolutely the message you're trying to spread which is no that's not it doesn't need to be like that so I absolutely love that but you also so I think that's such a great segue into talking about you know one of the statistics I read was it might be upwards of 50 or 70 percent of women who are being prescribed hormonal birth control or the pill aren't aren't even taking it to prevent pregnancy they're taking it for other reasons yes and often it's things like um regulating your period um or having a period when you don't have a period which is very interesting because you know we can all say okay you know if you have endometriosis or a chronic condition like that that you know if you need to have a better quality of life than you're currently having hormonal birth control may be a useful tool for you um, but you're, if you're, there's many women who are told, you know, essentially myths to, um, 
you know, encourage them to continue on hormonal birth control. You know, like it regulates your period, which we know it doesn't. You're not having a period on hormonal birth control. You're just having the same synthetic hormone every day and then a withdrawal bleed. Or it gives you a period if you don't have one. Again, it's not a menstrual period. It's just a withdrawal bleed. Um, or, um, you know, any idea, any ideas that we have around um, it fixing a particular issue without really uh, including the fact that when you come off it, it's quite possible that issue will just bounce back to what it was before. So you're really just suppressing for that time. Um, So, yeah, there's lots and lots of women who take it for lots of different reasons and often based on assumptions or things they've been told outright that um, are not true, actually. Um, And we just, you know, we've accepted that because... Perhaps that's what we experience, you know, um, at home when we take the pill and, you know, but we don't get the whole picture. Um, And so, you know, we find it necessary in ways that perhaps it isn't necessary because we don't really know not only the information about how it works, but also the other things that we could potentially be doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I know uh, many, many women, young women, as you say in your book, even starting from ages as young as... 12 or 14 are coming on it for heavy menstrual cycles, painful periods, PMS. And as you said earlier, it's really become this sort of, you know, be all end all cure for Mm -hmm. womenly problems. But, you know, the thing that makes me so sad and frustrated about it is no one's ever saying, well, why are we having these problems? Why am I having painful periods? We've all just sort of accepted, well, that's how it's supposed to be. Periods are painful. Um, You know, if you have heavy bleeding, that's just something that's wrong with you in particular, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, there's not many voices in the world today saying, well, wait a minute, let's figure this out because we can actually heal that. If we look at some of the root causes and some of the hormonal imbalances going on, we don't need to have those painful periods at all. And we can fix it naturally if we take a deeper look at what's going on versus, like you said, just masking the symptoms for years and years and years. And then when you try and come off it, all of those issues might be even worse than before. Yeah. And I think we've essentially got to a point where we see women as deficient in something and that the pill fixes that deficiency. Um, And that comes back to other myths, like the hormones in the pill are the same as the ones your body produces, which they're not. Um, Or the pill is just rebalancing your own natural hormone production or, you know, your own body's hormone production, which is not, it's replacing it. Um, And so, yeah, we've kind of set up the situation where, you know, we assume from a medical point of view that women are better off on synthetic hormones, the pill and then hormonal replacement therapy for menopause and, you know, continuing on Um, because, you know, our periods are inherently difficult or um, unhealthy or messy and so that then does a disservice to the people for whom periods are truly difficult and they really are very painful very heavy not tolerable Um, and then you know those people get the pill they don't get any further investigation into how this could be healed long term what what about when they want to come off and have if they want to get pregnant uh, what if they want to come off because of side effects? What if they need to come off when they're, you know, in their 40s? 
Um, so, yeah, really, that the narrative doesn't do anybody any favours, whether it is that you're on it and you don't really need to be because it's not doing the thing you want it to do, or you're on it because you really don't, can't deal with your cycles and your periods and, and, and nobody's given you another option for that. So you're being asked, well, is it better to not have this happen and instead deal with, you know, X, Y, Z side effects? you know, for the next 20 years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Which for the people who are having truly horrific symptoms, side effects, things like PCOS and endometriosis, it, you know, it's not an easy decision because it, exactly like you said, it's, do I want to suffer with these horrible symptoms and not have the side effects of this birth control pill? Or do I want to be able to live my life with a higher quality of life each day? But then have all these side effects from the birth control pill. So it's not, you know, it's such a hard choice and it makes it easier to understand why it's hard for many women to give it up and look for something else. Yeah, exactly. Um, And, you know, where we most of us go for information until, you know, quite recently has really just been the doctor's office. And, you know, they don't spend much time in medical school understanding women's fertility or you know the night I think it's like 96% of what they do learn is about hormonal contraceptives and so you know they're not really in the place to counsel you um, they're in the place to just give you what they have been told is the most effective option for the problem that you're presenting um, but now you know women are able to access other practitioners with um, you know uh, different kinds of healthcare practitioners for not as much money as it used to be um, they're accessible over the internet they're accessible you know this information is more widely available um, and women can take it into their own hands to an extent uh, without having to kind of go through the conduit of somebody who really doesn't know about the options but also that's not they don't really feel it's their job mm-hmm. to have to counsel you on those mm-hmm. different things so yeah I mean I think it's yeah it's, it's definitely you know a place now where you know interest in for example fertility awareness methods has doubled in younger people um and you know I think that shows that we're sort of reorganizing how we think about how women are treated in the doctor's office whether it's to do with birth control pregnancy um chronic any a health condition that men also experience or anything really mm-hmm. yeah now can you walk us through exactly what hormonal birth control is doing within our bodies because as you said a lot of women are under the impression that it's creating a real bleed it's regulating our actual hormones and I think the misconception there is a big big thing that needs to be cleared up yeah so basically when you take the pill um or the majority of hormonal contraceptive options the shot is you know the um, implant this is synthetic estrogen and synthetic progestin which is different from the estrogen and progesterone that your body produces it just is not the same chemically or physically Um, and it's there to essentially suppress your body's own production of that hormone um, in order to kind of prevent the triggering that those hormones would do in terms of ovulation menstruation Um, So your hormones, if you're not on any hormonal contraceptives, are going to fluctuate throughout the month, um, rise and fall in usually quite a predictable way. Um, With 
hormonal contraceptives, the idea is just to flat, flatten those rise, rises and falls um, in order to prevent ovulation. And um, then also, you know, some of them change things like, you know, your cervical fluid, your uterine lining, different things like that too, as secondary um, ways to prevent pregnancy. Um, and, you know, the only, you know, if you're on something like the hormonal IUD, which is progestin, um, that in some women will not stop ovulation immediately. You may find ovulation won't stop for some months. Um, a good number of women have ovulation will stop after two years, but that's an IUD. So it's working in different ways. It's, it's working due to attrition in the uterus. It's changing cervical fluid. It's doing all kinds of other things um, as well. Um, but for the rest of them, it's really about stopping ovulation. And then there's other secondary effects. Um, and so that means that for many women, you're not experiencing the fluctuation. So you're not experiencing ovulation. You're not experiencing menstruation. As I said, you're usually experiencing just a withdrawal period, but you may also not have any bleeds at all. Um, and then on, you know, that also means that, you know, if you realize that, you know, PMS exists and you are affected by hormones all the time, that, you know, that's obviously going to impact your mood throughout the month because you won't be experiencing those different um ups and downs you won't be experiencing ups and or potentially downs so that might mean you might feel the pms is relieved or you might feel like you have pms the whole time it's just mm -hmm. different for different people um and like any medication it's preventing the absorption of certain you know vitamins and minerals um, which has a knock-on effect. It's changing gut bacteria and the microbiome. Um, you know, in you know, in the way that we may more commonly talk about the issues with long-term use of antibiotics, um, a lot of those things can be cross-referenced with long-term use of birth control um, in terms of our health. So, yeah, the, uh, fundamentally, it has a whole body effect. So it's working on your brain to tell your ovaries what to do and what not to do. It's not magically communicating with your reproductive organs without having to go through your endocrine system um so when you talk about things like endocrine disruptors like um cleaning products or um what you know, different chemicals in plastics and things that we're using like that this is what the pill is it's an endocrine disruptor by design it has to disrupt your endocrine system in order to work mm -hmm. yeah and and you know the thing is is that women look at this and they say, great, I'm not going to have any periods. Basically, they think of it as sort of an acute cure for this one area. Exactly like you said, this isn't going to affect anything else. But I think the first question most people are going to have is, so it stops my normal hormone production. What's the big deal? What are what like, what is that going to do throughout my body? And you touched on some of those, but if you don't mind diving into some of the common side effects and also some of the risk factors. Yeah, so my main my main focus for for the over the years has really been the mental health side effects. And I went from a point of only talking about my experience which was, you know, depression, anxiety, panic attacks, um to talking about other women's experiences which were, you know, vast ranging but very similar. Lots of women experienced negative effects on their mental health. 
um, to now where we have large scale studies that show that the pill increases the likelihood of depression um, being um, diagnosed. And um, that's across the board, including things like the hormonal IUD and increases suicide risk amongst young women, especially, especially teenage women. Um, and, you know, we're seeing more on the effect on the brain um, in terms of the structure of the brain, per- the perceptions we have. There's, you know, interesting research coming out about how we read women, read emotions and face facial expressions on the pill differently to off the pill. So, you know, in this time, it's really gone from, you know, a handful of studies that pointed to the possibility that women were experiencing negative health, um, mental health effects um, and, you know, a handful of studies that could be called good quality that were able to show this over a period of time to several very population wide, large scale studies showing, yes, there seems to be a correlation here that this is what's happening um, and even including other factors in the mix. Um, and so that's really been my focus, because for a lot of women, I think that is what happens. And for a lot of women, you know, mental health issues more widely, we don't take seriously enough. But, you know, that could just mean that you don't feel great. You feel demotivated. You feel kind of blah. You don't feel interested in things you used to be interested in. Um, all these things that would affect your quality of life, but perhaps you don't see as clinical depression. I think they're all on the scale as well, for sure. Um, and that's my aim has always been to help women discover that because it's was so important to my own life, you know, my own wellness to come off and realize I had access to all these positive emotions. I had much could be much more grounded, could be much more centered in my reactions and emotions and feelings and the way I took care of myself when I was off than when I was on and I on the pill and I wasn't able to do those things. So, you know, obviously we also in the documentary are going to look at my wider side effects, like some of the things I mentioned, like nutritional deficiencies, the effect on the microbiome, the effect on the structure of the brain. Um, also, you know, the, the, the worst of all, you know, the women who've died because of their birth control method and, um, that's a big part of the documentary too. the women, young, healthy women who have suffered the, you know, the worst consequence because of their hormonal birth control method. And primarily that is, you know, the Nuva ring um, and Yaz, which is what I was on uh, originally. And when I was started writing the book, um, yeah, I can recommend some great books for you for that stuff as well. Like you look up Lisa Henderson, Jack, Lisa Hendrickson Jack's The Fifth Vital Sign, Dr. Jolene Brighton's Beyond the Pill. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there are some coming out, Lara, Lara Bryden's Period Repair Manual. Um, there are some amazing books out there that have come out in recent years um, that really delve into like what research there is out there. Exactly, you know, things like autoimmune condition connections and you know, things that I didn't consider when I wrote my book or wasn't knowledgeable enough to investigate. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So c- can you real quickly, just so that we all have it in our heads, touch on, can you just list all the types of hormonal birth control? I probably should have asked that in the beginning, but just so that um, for whoever might have any one of these, it's sort of resonate w- resonating with them. Like, 
okay, sure. this is part of this discussion we're having. Sure. So you've got the very different, you know, different kinds of pill and progestin only pill or mini pill, um, the Depo-Provera injection or shot, um, the Nuva ring, um, the um, implant, Implanon, now Nexplanon. Um, you've got many different hormonal IUDs. As I said, that's slightly different, but the research shows in terms of mental side of health side effects, there's really, you know, concern around those as well. They are having a whole body effect. It is not just localized. So that's Skylar, um, Mirena. Um, I think there's one that begins with L now as well. Laletta, possibly it's called. Um, and obviously, you know, you've also got, um, some of the ones that have fallen off now, like the patch, we don't hear about anymore. That was taken off the market. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else in terms of hormonal options. I think that probably covers it. Um, you know, if, when I'm asked about this, you know, I, I do say, you know, if you're not sure or if you would rather stay on hormonal birth control, it's definitely important to reconsider if you're using the Nuva ring. Or if you're using a pill with drospirinone in it, which is this particular kind of progestin, both of those types of birth control have been shown to have uh, increased serious risk of blood clot. Um, and, you know, neither of them have any particularly, be you know, uh, better, be more benefits than any other method. So, you know, if they're not more effective. So if you can choose to not use those, but use something else, you know, that would be the first, first step to take, I think. Mm -hmm. And there's so many things to unpack here. But so first of all, hormonal birth control is bringing with it all of these mental health side effects, anxiety, depression. But then, like you said, it's actually preventing the absorption of many nutrients. It's affecting our gut microbacteria which, you know, to sort of zoom out and look at it large scale, that is leading to down the road so many other issues like chronic yeast infections, chronic UTIs, leaky gut, which leaky gut can then lead to allergies and autoimmune diseases. So, you know, it's really just unfortunately this massive, massive downward spiral that because it can happen so slowly, it's so hard for us to recognize maybe what that sort of root cause actually is. Yes, definitely. I mean, and, you know, if you're around today and you're in your teens or 20s, the likelihood is that you have started taking hormonal birth control at, you know, quite a young age um, and that you are expected to continue um for most of your fertile life really um you know especially now that we're seeing less and less women choosing to have children and so you know you're also in that a situation where women may be taking it from 14 through to menopause and then staying on it or switching to hormonal replacement therapies um so yeah you're basically having to unpick what's your life experience and what is the pill you know and that's where a lot of women I think miss out on understanding like the connections between health issues they've experienced and 
the pill because we're on it for so long that it just becomes part of life and a lot of the effects are very insidious too so like with my mental health side effects it was over two year period that it got to the place it got to and I detail in my book so it took me two years to figure that out and to not just blame it on stress or my job or not eating properly or you know whatever else you would blame things on and the same when you go to a doctor I mean doctors tend to be reluctant to say it's that because they probably haven't seen the research and haven't read the research on it Mm -hmm. so they're more likely to say it's something else or not know Mm -hmm. and two things I want to point out one you know people maybe are thinking So you're feeling sad. So you're feeling lack of motivation. You know, we can all push through that. But an important thing to note here is, yeah, but it doesn't have to be such a struggle. (laughs) Of course, all of us at times in our life are going to be a little more stressed, a little more anxious, maybe even deal with a moment of depression here and there or uh, feeling lethargic. But the big thing here is there are women feeling this way every single day, having to put so much energy and effort to getting motivated, to doing just the simple things they need to do each day. And, you know, the point is, is, you know, coming off the pill is never, you know, it's not going to cure you of all sadness and anxiety you may ever experience, but holy cow, it can make each day just so much easier. Yeah. And also, you know, you're not, you, you, you might not realize until you come off things like, you know, you couldn't get very excited about something or you didn't have any kind of sex drive or your taste of uh, sense of taste and smell were not great. Or, you know, you don't necessarily realize these things until you've been able to come off and been off for a while. Um, And you may feel because you've been taking it for a really long time. Oh, I'm fine. I'm healthy. I don't have any problems. Um, but you do suffer with anxiety and perhaps you take anxiety medication and then you don't realize until you come off that you actually don't need to have anxiety medication it was what that was causing it um so you know I'm not I'm not advocating or I never would advocate for everybody to come off just because I say so but it's up to you and your individual experience and what you're talking about there is called anhedonia and you know you don't perhaps know you're experiencing anhedonia or subclinical depression until you're not anymore. Um, One of the stories I put in my book was the doctor I spoke to in the first chapter who said that she had taken it for such a long time that she just assumed her personality type was kind of like low energy, was like, you know, depressed. And then when she came off, she was like, oh, actually, I'm like super outgoing and happy-go-lucky. But I hadn't had access to that, you know, Um, and, you know, I think that that's just something that you, you, everybody is on their own journey with. And, and, you know, I've done workshops with women who've taken it for 20, 30 years and then been like, oh, I think I want to come off because of my age or they feel like it's not right for them anymore. And yeah, it can be a huge learning experience by that point. Yeah. One of the things I absolutely love that you said in your book that I've talked about so many friends with is this concept of girls are getting on hormonal birth control so young simply to, you know, again, help with their heavy periods or PMS, whatever the reason being. And the reason this is so critical is because it affects our mental health, our energy so much 
these young girls are getting on it before they have even really solidified their own identity as a person. And then this comes in and affects them so much that, like you said, they begin to think this is just how I am. I am emotional. I am irritable. I have, I'm just a depressed person. I'm just a low energy person, like you said. And, you know, it's so heartbreaking to think about all the women going through life looking at themselves that way. Mm. Yes. And also, you know, when you're a teenager, your still brain is still developing, your sense of self, your sexuality, your everything. Um, and then you're basically putting that on hold. And the development of your reproductive system, everything. So if it's affecting we know it's affecting development of reproductive system, which takes about seven years to mature, and we know it's affecting the structure of the brain, then yes, taking it when you're a teenager is something that we you know we, we tend to feel is necessary because we don't want teenagers to get pregnant. Uh, for or we don't want them to have to have heavy periods, or a lot of teenagers do experience irregular heavy periods because your reproductive system is maturing. Um, and it's easier than them having to deal with that and go to school every day and do extracurricular activities and everything. But we don't really examine it. We just see it as a necessity. And of course, you know, if you're doing that at that age, it can obviously have long term issues in terms of like, you know, everything, everything that you're that you grow up into, you know, especially if, you know, you end up taking it for a decade or more. Mm-hmm. And then I have to bring up one of the facts that you point out in your book, which is that I believe it was synthetic estrogen is actually listed as a carcinogen and brings with it risks, significant increased risks for, I believe it was breast cancer and is it ovarian? Well, um, ovarian is actually the risk is, according to the research, lowered by use of hormonal birth control. Um, It's... um, Breast cancer, cervical cancer, um, as, as female health cancers are the ones that are increased by the use of hormonal birth control. The risk is increased. Um, o, o, uh, ovarian is lowered because you the, basically like the, of, the ovaries aren't functioning while you're on hormonal birth control. Mm-hmm. Um, but cervical cancer, unfortunately, is increased. Breast cancer, you know, co- common female health cancers um, are. And of course, on the, there's lots of things that increase our risk of cancer. You know, it's almost impossible to avoid environmental triggers now. Um, but this is one of those things that is unavoidable, is, is avoidable, whereas there are many things that are unavoidable for most of us. So, you know, it's important to know that in terms of you know as you know I it's there are other ways to limit your risk of cancer than taking the pill um to avoid certain cancers like ovarian but there you know it's certainly not a it's a correlation it's not saying that if you take this you won't get this kind of cancer and at the same time you're not saying if you do take it you will get this kind of cancer there's you know cancer is very complicated but it's important to be aware, though, if you want to avoid risks because, say, you have a family history, a mother or a sister or an aunt, um, then, yes, I, if it were me, I would want to know. So mm-hmm. then I can make an informed decision from that point. Absolutely. Absolutely. And 
Can you touch on why is it, do you feel doctors are not sharing this information with women? Well, I think the main thing is that they feel it's their place to tell, to assume women's level of responsibility and understanding and they don't necessarily trust women to do what they need to do like fertility awareness methods to avoid pregnancy um and it's a very paternalistic view essentially or patriarchal view Mm -hmm. that women need to be limited in their knowledge only told what they need to know not told anything else because we might psychosomatically develop symptoms that we wouldn't otherwise have um and that you know it's better for women to be encouraged to take something that helps them avoid unplanned pregnancy um for social reasons and I talk about this in my book you know and for economic reasons for cultural reasons we also you know as a rule generally sort of as I said before assume women's bodies are problematic in the fact that they are hormonal as they're as they're seen um, and that stabilizing them with a medication is preferable for everybody Um, so there's a lot of you know cultural messaging from the Victorian times population level concerns all kinds of things going on Mm. wow (laughs) such a mess (laughs) Mm -hmm. oh man um So seriously, so many things I could ask you. So for the woman who is looking at all of this, hearing this information, saying, okay, I want to dive deeper into this. I think I want to get off of this. What are some of the issues that you see women having with actually getting off of it? And what is some advice or tips you would give them if this is something they really want to look into more and try to do, try to get off hormonal birth control? Um, Yeah, I think... I would say, you know, obviously you want to just do your own due diligence. You know, you know your body best. You know your experience best. Um, you know, you you know how you feel and trust that. You know, if you have a instinct or an intuition that this isn't right for you, then, you know, you may well be right. Um, if you are in the place to be able to take a break for a few weeks, a few months, see if it makes a difference, then you can do that. Then that will help give you some perspective um, from which you can make a decision. Um, and, you know, if you're, I think it's about finding a community to su- of support. I have a community on Facebook called Unsweetening the Pill, um, which is linked through the Facebook page for my book, Sweetening the Pill, which is a group that just literally just to support women who want to come off hormonal birth control. Um, yeah and just you know hopefully get find support from if not you know your partner your friend to you know somebody who values your health and well-being um, to help you but for a lot of women the transition is easy you come off you get your period back within three months your cycle starts again um, you know you, it's a positive experience everything is better you feel the positive um, change quite quickly that was what it was for me I really the only thing I dealt with was acne which I pretty much solved with supplementation of zinc Um, 
and you just take good care of yourself eat well um you know relax sleep exercise all the normal things and the vast majority of women will be better off for it if that's what they've chosen to do um some women will experience post pill problems um like no return of the cycle um you know uh, health issues related to low hormone levels related to nutritional deficiencies and then you know there's people like Nicole Jardim um and Jolene Brighton who you can go to for you know lots and lots of information on how to address those issues for sure um but it's, for a lot of women it's really nothing to be worried about and the only thing you really need to do is take care of yourself in the normal ways that you have been told for any situation and just be aware that yes you will have have some nutritional deficiencies you will want your body will want to restart cycles again and that takes a lot of energy in the body and um, a lot of um, resources and yeah that otherwise I think taking the break if you can do it your position to do it is the most useful thing that's what I did for a couple of weeks and that really informed my decision overall Mm -hmm. yeah and then if you're having those other symptoms again just be encouraged that it's your body just giving you a sign that hey something's a little off inside this doesn't need to be permanent and like you said I I um, read Beyond the Pill by Jolene Brighton and she just does such a good job of helping you sort of investigate your own menstrual symptoms and then get to the root cause of that and heal that up. So I want women to feel so, so encouraged that whatever symptoms you're having in regards to your period, there is almost undoubtedly a solution if you really are willing to sort of dig in and, as you said, educate yourself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So can you share with us some forms of non-hormonal birth control? And I really also want to touch on their efficacy rates compared to hormonal birth control, because there are some out there that are just as effective as hormonal, but again, without all those side effects. Yeah. So obviously you have the copper IUD or the non-hormonal IUD, which is highly effective at preventing pregnancy. It does also have a whole body effect and its own side effects. Um, I work with a company called Daisy that produces a fertility tracker, um, which is just a, a all-in-one device. You take your basal body temperature, it assesses when you ovulate, um, it, it uh, predicts the opening of your fertile window using your past data and an algorithm um, and gives you a green light when you're not fertile and a red light when you are. Um, and that grows out of the fertility awareness method that I've mentioned a few times, which is essentially understanding your fertility signs like basal body temperature or cervical fluid changes in order to know when you're fertile and when you're not, with the understanding that women are only actually able to conceive or fall pregnant within uh, six days each cycle. Um, Women themselves are only fertile for the the lifespan of the egg of 24 hours, 48 hours. Um, uh, the rest of that time is made up by the lifespan of sperm, which is a maximum of five days in the female body. Um, <clears throat> so that's where that fertility tracker has come out of. And, you know, you obviously have options to track your fertility in other ways. Um, so those are really, you know, depending on your situation, your relationship, your current status then those are really where you can go obviously you also have all the barrier methods like 
the chia diaphragm, uh, the fem cap, cervical cap, um, you know, vastly superior condom range that we have these days than we've ever had before. Um, things like there's a condom called um, Lilo Hex. There's all kinds of different things coming out in terms of the barrier technology. Um, yeah, so you, and of course you can use a range of those things, fertility awareness and barriers. You can have a copper IUD and practice fertility awareness until you're ready to have your IUD removed. Um, you know, there's lots of different options there for you. Um, with the fertility awareness methods in terms of effectiveness, we have very minimal research because we just have never had until this point a lot of women choosing to use them. So it's obviously difficult to find the populations to research. But, you know, the science is there. You know, women cannot get pregnant outside of that fertile window. So assuming that you can track that fertile window, then you should be able to effectively avoid pregnancy. Mm-hmm. No, I use the daisy personally. Oh, wonderful. I, I love it. Yeah. Oh, that's great. It, um, maybe eight or nine, eight or nine months now. But um, and I believe they the daisy is something around 96 no, no, it's over ninety nine percent according oh, to the okay. company research. Yeah, which to me was just like mind blown because when you compare it to um, the IUDs, which I believe IUDs are maybe that's what it was ninety six percent, and then I think it's ninety nine point six for the oh, IUD. Oh, is it? Okay. it it's pretty high, if not higher okay. than that. Yeah. Okay. But then the pill, based on you know how well you take it, yes, yeah, so if you don't miss pills, quite low. and also your weight. Um, any sickness you know taking other things like antibiotics at the same time the actual you know real life effectiveness of the pill is is isn't like I want to say it's about 91 percent yeah I think so because um of all those you know you're relying on all those things to come into play um and we're learning more and more about you know if, if women are uh a higher weight level that they may not be as effective things like that mm. so wow. yes but yes I mean nothing apart from abstinence is 100 <laughs> percent. but it's all about you know it's all about you know with fertility awareness it would be if you're avoiding pregnancy and you absolutely cannot get pregnant and do not want to get pregnant you would be avoiding PIV as I call it sex on the days that you're fertile um and mm-hmm. you know not relying on a barrier method um that you would only be relying on the effectiveness of that barrier method um so that's the way to see it and everybody is somewhere on the spectrum of wanting to have a baby and not wanting to have a baby and you kind of have to get to make decisions um or from that place on your on the spectrum as to how you navigate any fertility tracking mm-hmm and then having that conversation, if you do have a partner of, you know, I hear so often, and I'm sure you have too, well, my boyfriend doesn't want to use condoms. He doesn't like the way it feels. Mm-hmm. And I think just, you know, beginning to give women the confidence to stand up for themselves a little, a little bit and say, you know, I understand it may not feel as good, but let me explain to you all the side effects of this type of birth control and why I've chosen not to do that. And so, and then almost sort of shifting it back to them and saying, you know, if you care, if you don't care about my health, health enough mm-hmm. to take that into consideration, then that says a lot about you and yes. the relationship. And, 
maybe that's something that we should reconsider and talk about. But shifting it into that versus, you know, well, my boyfriend doesn't want to use condoms. So I guess my only other option is hormonal birth control. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's true. And you do have to see that, you know, this might bring up some red flags, as it were, you know, um, if you have with somebody that's persuading you to continue to take something that you feel is detrimental to your health and well-being. Um, but it's definitely the biggest obstacle in the workshops I do. We talk a lot about navigating that conversation um, and, you know, how to talk about it, um, what you should expect in terms of support. Um, you know, I think it's, you know, obviously very sad to consider how many women do have to stay on things and use birth control methods that they don't want to purely, you know, to 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 um, accommodate what the person that they're with feels about it. Mm-hmm. And it just begins with, again, that self-education and knowing the stats for yourself and then being able to communicate that with your partner and the people around you because I or ask them to do the work for you because it's not you know they are have to you know they're fertile every single day yeah Um, for most of their lives they could get a woman pregnant you know they could get 20 women pregnant a day um forever so you know they can do the reading they can do the research with Daisy with Daisy we do find it's often a great one for those partners who are you know and I do also understand the fear that can come from using something different that you may have know even less about than the woman that you're with um because it's technology it's an algorithm it's red and green it's very simplifies those conversations down um, makes it much less stressful the communication Um, And, you know, you're also relying on something outside of yourself alone to make those interpretations. So it can ease that somewhat. Yeah. And I just feel like the topic of hormonal birth control, what it's doing to us is not something women alone should be learning about. You know, Mm -mm, I, I encourage I tell all my male friends about it and I tell them, go tell your friends, tell your girlfriend. This is information we all need to know so that we can all be healthier, happier, and just make more informed decisions. Yes, exactly. And then real quick, I just, you know, thought of this that I want to make sure that we touch on it. You do make a point to distinguish between fertility tracking in terms of like the DAISY fertility tracker, which as you said, is backed by many, many studies. It is an algorithm as opposed to uh, period tracking apps. Yeah. So a period tracking app that you're just saying, when you got your period is really just digitized rhythm method. So while it might help you track your periods, depending on how regular your cycles are, it's not something to use for your fer- <clears throat> for knowing when you're fertile, your fertile window or predicted ovulation. Um, it's, you know, that is what we know as the rhythm method. It's just an app form. Um, unfortunately, a lot of those apps do try and like capitalize on the idea of giving you that information, mostly because they think women who are trying to conceive would benefit from it, even though those women also need accurate information to conceive. Um, yeah, so it's, it's you know, that's not a substitute for fertility awareness method. That's not, you know, tracking your periods is part of fertility awareness absolutely but it's not the only thing you have to be doing something every day to know when you're fertile Mm -hmm. yep I love that so to kind of wrap this up where do you see 
the future of birth control going? Do you think that hormonal birth control is something we will ever get disbanded? Do you feel like it's going to be around forever? I think we, I've always say that we have two paths to take. I think we can either reconnect with the body and our exterior environment and nature um, and look to like work with those things rather than against them and to stop seeing them as things we need to manage, control, override. Um, Or we can go in the opposite direction, which is disassociate from the body disconnect um look to technology um you know in terms of you know automating hormonal birth control through microchip through whatever method we can in order to not have to you know deal with it um through you know desire for efficiency or fear of you know lack of control And I think, you know, we do have those two directions in terms of how we deal with fertility and we have those two directions in terms of how we deal with life and it's all connected and we are at a crossroads and we're either going to go down one path or we're going to go down the other. And, you know, one path will just be about, you know, essentially doing away with how we connect with the body in any way and, you know, looking to remove ourselves from that and, you know, dismissing the environment and nature and, you know, whatever that means. Um, nature, I mean, as in like the world we live in and, you know, rather than natural, I mean, like actual nature, capital N. And then, you know, that's possible. Um, but it's also possible that we'll see that that's not worked out for us so far. Mm. And that the best way that we can reconnect with the earth is to reconnect with our bodies learn about them, work with them, understand them, you know, um, put our health first. I mean, we're at this time now that we're recording this. I mean, it could go either way. So we will see, I guess. We will see. Mm -hmm. Well, first of all, I love that you say just reconnect. But also I love what an incredibly well-rounded approach you bring to this topic because you know, so many people have really their one field of view. And while it can be so informative, it's just that one point of it. And I just love that you're able to bring in the science, you're able to bring in the social aspect of it, the cultural aspect of it. So, um, you know, so amazing. I absolutely (laughs) love this conversation with you. I'm so excited for people to hear this. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I've enjoyed myself. And it's, it's nice to talk about it. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad because you talk about it a lot. So I'm glad you still enjoy it. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) Yeah. Well, with that, thank you so much, Holly, for coming on and have a wonderful rest of your week. Thank you. You too. Wow. Well, that was such a dream to get to interview Holly on this topic. And I really hope that each of you feel like you received such a comprehensive look into the topic of hormonal birth control. So for this week's magnetic moment, and just my challenge for how to apply this information to your life in some way, I really, really want to hear from you guys. So male, female, whoever you are, if you listen to this, I would love to hear what your favorite part of the episode was. Maybe it was the piece of information that you found the most shocking or 
the piece of information that you resonated most with, but I would love to hear how it was for you and just the thoughts that it brought up, maybe the questions that it brought up. So you can send me a message on Instagram, on Facebook, even on my website, and I link to all of my social media in the show notes below. So definitely reach out. I truly am so excited to hear from each of you and just start a discussion on this. With that, I hope everyone has an amazing weekend ahead of you and I will tune in with all of you next week.